You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome, everybody, to this uh, wonderful um, location for what I hope is going to be a fantastic talk this evening. Uh, I'm Councillor Therese. Uh, I'm a City of Melbourne councillor and I look after the planning portfolio in the city, so I spend a good part of my working week um, obsessing about quality design and architecture and how we make our city uh, even more beautiful. Um, can I begin by, um, the, by thanking um, the organisers for the invitation to speak this evening and also on behalf of the City of Melbourne respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Wamanjenka Marambik Bornup, Wurundji Willem U Liwek U Kulin, Yalimbu Ba Yirumboi. I pay my respects to the Wurundjeri traditional owners, their ancestors, and the Kulin people, past and present. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, our two terrific speakers this evening, Professor Martin Cook, who is the Dean of the School of Architecture and Urban Design at RMIT, and tonight, importantly, also a Melbourne Awards judge, and also Jenny Webster, who is a senior associate at Law Architects, and indeed the winner of the inaugural um, Urban Design Award uh, for this year's Melbourne Awards. Yeah, give it up for Jenny, thank you. Um, I've got to say that um, the annual City of Melbourne Awards recognise outstanding achievement in a range of fields, but as I mentioned, last year we introduced the category of urban design. First time we've done that, it's part of a real push in the City of Melbourne to have a renewed focus on quality design and promote a conversation in our city about how important that is. And uh, it was great that the first winner of this accolade was indeed uh, Law Architects for the Carlton Learning Precinct. Um, we're going to hear a lot more about that project this evening, so um, I, I certainly don't propose to say anything uh, other than uh, how much I love the green infrastructure that you've included as part of it. I love the use of red brick, which is such a Melbourne material. Um, I love the use of patterned brick, and I love the thoughtfulness of how it all comes together in that education precinct there. And it's, it's such an important um, community hub in the city. Um, across the board, the City of Melbourne is trying to make a big push towards um, that increased focus on design. And there's a couple of things we're trying to do to make that happen. One, of course, is the inclusion of the new Urban Design Award. We've also tried to establish a new Excellence in Design Committee for the Melbourne, for, for the city, to try and drive a conversation and more detailed thinking about what we want to see in different parts of our city. Uh, and particularly with all the development we've got going on around the place. We're also establishing a design review panel to look at particular projects. We think that the um, Victorian government architect has done a, a good job and that, that design panel review process is having a positive impact. But um, whereas the Victorian state architect looks at projects of state significance, um, that still leaves a huge number of projects which nonetheless may be not quite projects of state significance but make a huge contribution to um, the look and feel and design quality of our city. And so 
we think that the City of Melbourne has an important a role to play in stepping up there. We're also very much about promoting the use of design competitions, particularly on signature sites around the city, which, which um, contribute in important ways to um, those important postcard views of our city, but also how the city feels at the street level. So these are just a number of the measures that we're introducing to just try and um, allow people like Jenny to get more work <laughs> through quality <laughs> architecture firms and um, hopefully mean people like Martin can graduate more students who are brilliant architects and can promote better quality and design to our city. And so without any further ado, um, as the local mug politician, I'm going to get out of the way and um, introduce Jenny and Martin. Welcome. Thank you. There's a lovely open seat at the front for those of Come you standing on. at the back. Go on. Thank you, Nick, and uh, thank you everyone for coming along. It's uh, braving the moisture that uh, has greeted us today after a glorious weekend. And I must say, this is a beautiful backdrop for us to be talking about a project in the city and uh, within the context of the Melbourne Design Awards, just really beginning to question the, the context of what urban design is and, and what urban design should be to the city of Melbourne, uh, as perhaps as distinct, uh, as the councillor mentioned, between what is appropriate to be concerned at a state level. Uh, and we'll begin to talk about that a little bit this evening. Um, Jenny, I just thought we would open up uh, with a, for those of you listening at home, uh, with a, 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 an illustration, I suppose, from your perspective of a description, an overview of the project. Um, thanks, Martin. Before I start, I'd like to just say that there is no single winner here. You don't get a project like this and you don't have a successful project without a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of people involved. Um, and I just note in the audience tonight is Bard Gregory, who had a lot to do with this in its early inception design, and also Ian Winter from the City of Melbourne, who were our, our partners in crime in getting this one up and running. Um, we began this journey in 2016, um, Carlton Primary School at that stage uh, was existing in an old three-storey building built in the 1960s from the remnants of the materials that they used in the Housing Commission flats behind it. Um, so I think that probably already gives you an impression of, of the status of this school at the time. It was known as one of the white flight schools, uh, whereby while Carlton was a growing population, with a huge amount of young uh, youth coming in, all of their primary schools were bursting at the seams except for Carlton Primary School, which had a capacity for about 500 students but only had 80 at the time in 2016. Um, I think what, what we discovered as we came into the project was it might have looked fairly, fairly bad from the outside, but that was an impressive school. Those 80 kids were amazing, enthusiastic, vibrant, dynamic. Their teaching staff were passionate and enthusiastic. And the only problem they had was that they had an awful environment in which to, in which to exist. And really what they needed was an ability to show, to be proud of who they were and what they brought to the community. So the first task for us was how do we create what was at that time a, um, an unloved and an underutilised site in a very prime position 
uh, into something that could reflect this vibrant community of, of Carlton Primary School. So the original brief wasn't simply design a school. The original brief had more complexity from that from day one and the, the site wasn't exactly a straightforward site. No, and actually the brief for us at, the, at that point was Carlton Primary were given $10 million to redevelop their school. That was, that was pretty much it. Now on the periphery of that conversation, there was an idea bubbling along that if they could turn it into a community facility, they, that would be great because they really thought that there'd probably be space left over. So it was a genesis of an idea, but there wasn't a lot sort of put in place other than I think some initial conversations with, with the city of Melbourne. Um, it might be useful for those of you who haven't worked on education projects, uh, public education projects, the Department of Education have a, has a very strict brief on what schools are able to have. Uh, there's a term that we know as entitlements. Every school is entitled to a certain amount of space, a certain type of space, um, and a budget that will be budgeted down to the one square metre of space. Um, and one of the things that this school had was probably too much space in those existing buildings uh, to be used. So hence the conversation about getting the City of Melbourne on, on board. And that started back in 2016 and I think it's probably fair to say that it's taken those four long years to make, you know, to, to make that happen. I think that uh, the passion that was shown by the City of Melbourne to come on board, their willingness to work, when you've got multiple stakeholders, everybody has an idea of what they want. And obviously everyone needs to get something out of it. Um, and probably one of the largest challenges is working with um, you know, several people who all have different interpretations of what it is that they want to get out of the end design. Yeah. So, so let's set the context up a little bit. So we have uh, the Housing Commission flats which were much stigmatised mm -hmm. and, and perhaps still uh, remain as a, a very large symbol of a, of a different era of social housing. We have a dilapidated um, school building with enthusiastic individuals. And then we have a kind of empty corner on an inner urban street with a vibrant, disparate community around it. So, so what do you do first? <laughs> so the first thing we do is to work through essentially what, what is the brief. And there's, there's a few parts to this. The first one is the school for the numbers of children they have are entitled to a full-size enclosed gymnasium. So we knew that somewhere on this site that was the intention, was to put a full-size enclosed gymnasium. Trouble is, they had no space. They have a small patch of green space which they love dearly and we're not going to give over for anything. And they had a basketball court right on the corner, on the corner of Palmerston and Rathdown Street. Um, the trouble is that the budgets don't match the often, you know, the acknowledgement that what they want is a glorious facility. So essentially, our budget would have allowed us to have a big metal shed right on the corner of Palmerston and Rathdown Street, um, which obviously poses several problems for us, not least of which is that that is not a very inviting way uh, to, put a, to put your mark on, on the site. So it, it led us to, you know, sort of down two paths. Firstly was the urban design response, and is it appropriate to build a large mass uh, potentially very enclosed shed on the corner of a, you know, an, inner, an in, inner urban site. And was that what the school needed? Was that going to give them what they needed? So through a series of a long consultation process with the school, with workshops, with uh, student staff and parents, what transpired was that they didn't need an enclosed court. 
They didn't need to do competition sport. They needed a space where they could play, where the kids could run, where they could do ball sports, where they could gather, where they could meet, where they could have their community markets, where the kids could go skating and play basketball. And, you know, I think the light bulb moment, and I can thank Bard for this, was why does it have to be an enclosed space? Why don't we just give them a roof and allow all of that perme permeability from inside and outside so that the community can come in and the school can go out? Um, and I think that was, that was the turning point, for sure. And uh, tell me what a cola is. <laughs> so a cola <laughs> is a covered outdoor learning area. And we're hoping that the VSBA and the Department of Education take this on as a new yeah. building typology that they can spread across Victorian, Victorian schools. And it's essentially that. You know, it is a learning space for the kids, amongst a whole lot of other things. <laughs> Let's go back to the consultation piece. So not only was the consultation with the school, but it also had to involve the community because the interface of the COLA was really making a, a very prominent gesture into what was quite a complex urban condition. Yeah, so we did, um, we took a large role in the communication with the school. The City of Melbourne took a large role in that greater communication. Uh, but we had meetings with, you know, across the road is the Carlton Baths. We had the local residents uh, who have a lot of beautiful houses along Palmerston Street. Uh, there's also a number of uh, lot large apartment buildings now that have gone up since then. And then there's a, a collection of small shops across the road. So we visited most of those. Uh, we allowed the school actually were the most proactive and they decided that they wanted to have a community meeting and they wanted everybody to attend and they wanted to allow all of the voices to be heard. And they did a letter drop to everybody out there um, and we had a community meeting and we proposed it then. I have to say at that time the school was on board, the City of Melbourne was on board but we were still listening to the voices out there. And interestingly, one of the voices that was least heard was the parents. So the parents of these kids um, were very shy. And you know, while the kids were enthusiastic and wanted to do workshops every day and the staff were getting out there looking at model facilities, the parents didn't want, they just didn't know how to react. Uh, and I think they, they truly believed that what the school wanted to do was gonna be in their best interest. But, for us, it, the, the, that very first concept of how do we design something that allows the parents to be part of their children's education? Because that's what, that's what the school was missing. Uh, the parents tended to stay on the fringes, not wanting to disrupt, not wanting to take part. Often they didn't speak English and they didn't feel like they had a voice. So how, I, I can only imagine 400 people in a room, <laughs> you standing at the front. <laughs> Actually not that many turned up. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have to say was testament to the school that they had done due diligence and pretty much got everybody on board um, by that stage. So how does that run? How, how do you have to modify the way that an architect speaks to a community when that, com when that community is so diverse, yeah. when the context is so challenging? How, how do you actually adopt a different set of skills, a different set of ways of communicating? I think um, the last thing you talk about is the architecture because that's not what they want to hear about. Um, everybody has their own piece of the puzzle and what it is that they want to get out of it. And so we had listened intently to what some of those discussions were. So we made sure we talked about 
the community market on a Saturday that had been running forever and that it would still have a place in this new cola. Uh, we made sure that we talked about the kids playing basketball after school and being able to be free to go to the Neal Street Reserve next door. And we made sure that we put that voice into the conversation. Uh, we heard about the skateboarders who love to come through and what their place would be. Would they now be locked out of this space uh, that they had you know, previously loved as a derelict part of town? So I think it's about finding everybody's trigger point. Uh, for some people, that was the money. When it came to the VSBA, they just wanted to make sure we weren't spending more than our $10 million budget. Um, and in that case, we actually put a business case together to prove to them that a cola would be about $800,000 cheaper than an enclosed gymnasium and therefore we could put that money back towards refurbishment of the school. And in doing so, we could actually improve the lives of X amount of children uh, in that environment. So, you know, for them, it was, it was a business plan and making sure all the nuts and bolts were in place. For the parents, it was a feeling of confidence that we knew what we were doing. For the owners of the shops across the road, it was, is this going to bring more people into our workplace? So it is tailoring the way that you speak, yeah. I'm, I'm interested at what point in time the maternal health centre and the early learning centre, when, how, how did those elements come into the project? Were they there from day one or, or were they introduced quite late? Um, look, they came in on board fairly early as a concept. It took a long time uh, for the briefing to happen uh, with the City of Melbourne. This was the first time the City of Melbourne had done a project like this where they combined into the school and it became a community facility. They usually like to have a provider on board before they get into the nitty-gritty of how they're going to design the centre. So uh, we worked very, very heavily with Ian and his team to come up with a brief. I think there was a lot of learnings in that. In an ideal world, we would have that set a little bit uh, more upfront. Uh, we went round and round in circles quite a few times, um, right, probably right, right to the end. But I think what, what made it happen was the, the determination and the leadership of each of those partners to make it happen. So when we came across obstacles, when the subject of who's going to pay for the maintenance on this building came up and the whole thing nearly fell apart, um, everyone was still talking <laughs> and everyone kept talking um, and, and we worked through it. So one of the challenges with working with schools is thresholds and understanding what gets locked, what gate is secure, what door needs a swipe access. When, when you introduce this additional program onto the site, what sort of challenges did that throw up from a security perspective or a porosity perspective? Yeah, look, I would, that was probably one of the biggest things that uh, got everybody in the room talking quite loudly. Um, the school was very used to having the autonomy over this site. Uh, the entrance to the school was from the rear, so directly from the Housing Commission. Um, and we knew that the intention from the very beginning is if this is to be a community facility, everybody has to come in at the front door. There needs to be equity across everybody entering the building. Um, and, you know, it took the school a little, a little bit of time to come to that because they were then entering a school and they occupy the first and the second floors of the building. The early learning centre and the community facilities occupy the ground floor. So for the school, that meant everybody coming in at ground level into a community facility and then going upstairs to the main administration area. We tried multiple different schemes whereby we could get the administration of the school down on the ground level, but functionally and programmatically, um, it just wasn't going to work. But I think in the end, actually, it, it's pretty good. I think if people accept that you know, change is needed. 
And what it does mean is that when parents come and they've got a kid to drop off at school and someone to take to the maternal health centre and another kid playing basketball outside, they can all come to one place and, they can, and they're all prepared to come together. And in the end, it, it's not a problem that the school ad administration is on the first floor. Um, the wayfinding and the signage is very clear so that everybody knows where it is that they need to go. So let me dwell a little bit on the renovations to the existing building. And I know that your expertise is in education design and education spaces and adaptation of traditional spaces into contemporary pedagogies. 10 million will get you a lick of paint and maybe <laughs> new locks lot. on the doors. You know? yeah. So tell us about what those strategies were when you were looking at reappropriating what would have been quite sort of straightforward general purpose classrooms. Mm. So the, the structure of the building is all made up of um, tilt-up panels, 100 mil thick, load-bearing walls. So the existing spaces were pretty much dog boxes with no windows in them, and that's how the school was used to working. There was a limit to what we could do with the existing structure because of that. Uh, so we made insertions into those concrete panels at, at, the, at the structural engineer's advice where we, where we could. Um, but we really couldn't touch that building very much at all, other than re replacing, replacing the windows. But I think the best thing that came out of that, and this is a testament to the school's commitment to this project, was we were intending for them to change the way that they, they teach and learn quite dramatically. And it doesn't take much in a school to knock out a few walls to change the way that, that teachers have to teach. Um, we had talked to them a lot about change management and how they were going to work with us and bring the staff along on that journey so that they, didn't, they weren't put into these new environments without understanding what to do. And because of the time it took, the school actually took it upon themselves, A, to go and look at a lot of model facilities around the place, and then B, they set up prototypes within their existing buildings. So even within these tiny little classrooms, they started to do some team teaching. They used the library and divided it into different spaces so that they could have three teachers and 75 kids to see how that would work and to see what is it that we need, what are the sort of learning settings that uh, you know, we're going to need in our, in our new building. And they were doing that all the way through the design process um, and they continued to do that once they moved into the second floor which was built first uh, while the first floor was, was still under construction. And what it meant was that by the time they got to move into those spaces, they were ready to go. They had their curriculum, the kids were there, there was no fear of coming into a changed environment. And that is just gold for a school because it's one of the hardest things we find is when they move in, they all get scared, no one knows how to use it and they want to put all the balls back in again. <laughs> so let's get back to the cola as the, really for us as a jury, one of the key reasons why we were attracted to your project was the manner in which there was an explicit relationship between what the project was as far as the school was concerned and then what the school was offering up to the community as a piece of infrastructure for their activities in that in that community context so it wasn't just a leftover it, it strikes me as though the building the cola itself sort of fed off those changes that were occurring inside the school but but really reflecting a different way of understanding how that learning and socialising might take place in an external environment. Can you maybe talk a little bit through how you landed 
the cola where it was and, and just sort of that level of permeability or, or, or the sort of porosity to the edge of the site that the cola delivers? Yeah, I think um, given that it's an inner urban site, uh, they had very limited footprints. They had no, spa no outdoor space other than a small green space on the northern side uh, and a couple of bocce courts that the Italian old blokes had been playing on forever, which unfortunately we had to take over. <laughs> um, and then they had their hard, hard courts, which were on the corner. Um, for us, it came down to a sustainability element as well, that you do not build on unbuilt land unless you really, really need to, so that we could contain the footprint uh, of the new building on the existing uh, hard court. And the new part of the building, which was some of the maternal health uh, and the community centre, which is at ground level, we basically infilled the existing car park that was underneath uh, and the existing courtyard. So it was really about trying to maximise the amount of adaptive reuse we could do to the existing building to build on the unused and unloved parts of the sites without disturbing the rest of the site that the school still still wanted to retain. Um, as far as the coal is concerned, I think, you know, one of probably a lot of people's greatest fear, maybe the City of Melbourne's greatest fear, was that we'd end up with just with a, a shed outside or just a shed roof without the walls. So it was super important for us to uh, get the architecture right on the cola and work the details, make sure that this was a, a beautiful thing uh, and not just a leftover thing and that it would actually draw people in to have a look at it, to say, what's going on there? We wanted to make sure that there was a curiosity about what we'd put up there. So, you know, the kids said to us at one stage after we'd finished it, I never knew plants could grow that high. How, how do the plants grow? And to us that's fantastic because it's created a whole learning experience um, because of the decisions we've made um, as architects. And we've had other people go in there and say, I don't understand how it gets held up. You can't see much from underneath the roof. So, you know, I think that's a testament to the architecture team that um, really were committed to getting a beautiful building. I mean, sitting in a beautiful shed mm. um, would be good. Could you describe in detail what, what the cola is made from and, and how it, it becomes manifest architecturally? Yeah, so it, I mean, it is a steel frame. Uh, it uses a product, a roofing product that called Aramax, which uh, for those of you who don't know, is just a massive profiled piece of corrugated iron, about that big. <laughs> they use it in Queensland a lot. It copes really well with uh, one in a hundred floods, so it might actually come in quite handy for us over the, ne over the next few years. Um, and, and a steel frame, and, and that is essentially the bones of it. I think the, um, the integration of the green wall was really, really important. Yeah, so tell us about the green wall. It sort of wraps around the top of the building. Yeah, so it yeah. wraps around the top of the building. It's it's, it runs on an irrigation system that's at about five metres high, and that irrigation system is fed by the roof rainwater. And all of that irrigation system, the pipework, uh, the way that it wraps around the building, you can see there's mesh over it, but the whole intention was that the kids could actually join, join the dots. You know, ah, the rainwater's falling on the roof, it's coming down the pipe, it's going along that pipe, and that's why the plants are growing halfway through the building. And to have that for them was, you know, a, a, a real, you know, a joy to see them understand that and look at it. But then the, at the ground level, the basketball court mm -hmm. is enclosed, but you didn't just throw a fence up. I mean, I think there's a, a very elegant uh, manipulation of the, of the fence line. Yeah, we, 
in the early days, we really wanted to keep it as open as possible. But given the program we needed to fit on the site and trying to make sure that the court had, as a public facility, had access to toilets and cleaner spaces, what we realised very quickly was that we need to make sure those amenities were attached to the cola and not attached to the school or the internals of the community hub so that when the space is hired out or used for community use, they don't have to come into the school, which is one of the issues you get when you've got a single point of entry. So those brick uh, sort of outhouses that you see along Rathdown Street are actually the toilets. They don't come up to their, their completely standalone. They allow for the permeability between them and above them. Uh, to make sure that it doesn't act as a wall. Uh, the patterned red brickwork was a response to the, uh, the more residential nature of the materials used in some of the beautiful houses along, along Palmerston Street. And at every stage we were trying to make it at a, at a human scale, if not at a, at a kid scale, to make sure that it didn't feel overwhelming to them, that there were always gaps between the spaces. So it's about 1,800 high? It's about sort of yeah, about, I think about six two, foot in some about places? About two foot. About 2.4 was the ceilings of the toilets and then in between there, there, ha there are fences because Rathdown Street's a busy, a busy road. Unfortunately, we couldn't let the kids run straight through much as we would have liked to. Um, but it was certainly a deliberate attempt to try and make it as permeable as possible within the bounds of trying to fit program into the building. So as a jury, what we really liked uh, was the gap in between the top of the wall mm -hmm. and the bottom of the green wall and the roof. And there seemed to be this idea that sort of air could come in and then noise would sort of radiate out when the kids were playing. Yeah, and actually the noise was a big thing because part of it was, you know, you can see, you know, with, with your eyes, but, but often you hear before you see. And if you're walking down the street and you can hear the noise of kids playing, it draws you in. And that's a really good point because we wanted to make sure that that noise actually filtered, filtered through. It doesn't always work necessarily, but the we actually brought the neighbours on board and made sure they were okay with that noise coming through. And there's seats in the bottom of the wall that sort of interface back into the street? Yes, yes, there are. And um, interestingly, we had a... After we finished the cola about three months ago, we interviewed some of the local residents and also some of the local shop, uh, shop owners along to see how the cola was impacting them and the cafe shop down the road said, oh, you know what, we've been asked so many times from our patrons whether they could take it, get a takeaway and take it across the road, sorry, whether they could have their cup, not in a takeaway cup, but take it across the road and sit at the cola because they wanted to watch what was going on because there was kids playing or there were, you know, there was a band playing that day. So, you know, to us that's the ultimate in, you know, testament if you've got people wanting to go and sit there. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about how you turn the corner. Uh, I mean, I think... A lot of urban design principles are fundamentally born in the way in which a project turns the corner. Um, tell us a little bit about how you managed it in this context around the edge of the cola. So Rathdown Street being a very busy street, there was a lot of discussions about where the entrance to this, to this new facility would be. And uh, it became clear pretty quickly that Rathdown Street was, was just not going to work. Too busy too many cars, not enough uh, quiet time, not enough ability for pedestrians to come through. So I think at an early stage, we knew that Palmerston was, this, was the street, but we wanted to make sure we were collecting people as they walked down Rathdown Street. So it really anchored us to that very corner edge of, of Palmerston and Rathdown. They were doing a lot of works, the City of Melbourne were doing a lot of works with the urban infrastructure at that place and the landscaping in the streets and that, that all was very, uh, you know, came to fruition at the, at the right time. 
Um, let's talk about landscape a bit. I mean, the, the thing which also strikes me is that it's quite a tough site in terms of just the sheer area of asphalt around there and the, the sort of almost microclimate that's set up by the housing commissions in their proximity to north. How, how did you work your way around conceiving it as a, a landscape project as much as a piece of architecture? I think um, we wanted to draw on what we could that was already existing. And this is one of the problems when you've got a site that you've got a lot of building program and, and nowhere to fit it. So we looked further afield and thought, how as an urban design strategy, how can we draw upon what is already here? And one of the great things that's there is the Neal Street Reserve, which actually runs between the school and the Housing Commission, which is a, uh, a sporting facility uh, as well as a beautifully landscaped piece of work from the City of Melbourne. But no one could get to it other than from the Housing Commission. So nobody from Rathdown Street would have even known it was there. So that was one of the intentions was if we position the cola where we do and we allow and we create the entry off the corner such that people can be drawn through and all the way into the Neal Street Reserve, we're actually borrowing existing, existing landscape that exists on the site. Um, similarly with the Carlton Baths across the road, it's a little hard to borrow the Carlton Baths, but to be able to position the, um, the visual aspect from the Rathdown Street side to be able to see the Carlton Baths, it's really about being in the middle of that Carlton Primary School site and drawing on everything that's around us because we didn't have a lot of opportunity to put green space in ourselves. Mm. I mean, I think for the jury, one of the things that we were really compelled by was the way in which this, this small piece of architecture really was pulling way above its weight. Mm. And for us, stitching together a whole series of disparate elements into a very concise but beautifully detailed gesture that we also found when you visit is surprising. Um, the, the light that comes through the foliage at the upper level uh, in the morning and in the afternoon, the way that that acoustic agenda about the resonance, the, the quality of the space, the simplicity of the detailing, for us was really about um, so much more generous to the community and the urban context than perhaps the original brief might have been. And I think that's what we think is important about this award rather than necessarily other awards for urban design at a state level. We think that this award has to be embedded in community and that this award has to be driven by really a, a bottom-up idea of what urbanism might be in the city of Melbourne. I also wanted to just talk about perhaps what surprised you when you'd completed the building. And I know many people are, are talking about post-occupancy evaluation in our schools being a really critical part of the conversation. But in this one, what surprised you when you saw how the people were using the facility? Um, I think probably what surprised us the most was how well it lived up to what we wanted it to be. <laughs> that you always have these idealistic notions of bringing community together and seeing the parents hanging out at the front door because that's how you designed it to be. And it doesn't always happen that way. You know, sometimes you get a, you get a part of that. But speaking to the community, speaking to the kids, listening to the kids talk about the cola 
and what they do in the cola and they do everything in the cola. You know, even just the terminology that that has taken on, it's got a life of its own, that word now that we had never intended for it, uh, which, is, which is great. Um, one little story about the kids. Uh, we wanted to make sure that they understood what was going on. They were living in this school during its construction. It was built in stages such that the ground floor and the second floor and the cola were built at the same time while the school was residing in the first floor and, and working and educating. And then once those were finished, the school moved into the second floor and the first floor was refurbished. Um, this was a decision because the only other way we could do it was to pay for portables to put the kids onto the green space in portables and spend a million dollars just in that transition. And the school said, nope, we want to put all the money towards the school. We will live with it. We will deal with it. Um, so as part of that, we wanted to make sure that the kids were integral in that construction process. So we built them little steps so that they could look out their windows into particular areas of the construction zone at the time. Uh, we took them on tours with their hard hats and all the rest of it. Um, and the school embedded it in the curriculum. Uh, so they, you know, they did assignments on diggers and what diggers were on the side and what sort of things were those diggers going to be doing. But for the older kids, so the grade four, five and six kids, they got a project uh, to design of their own, which was to design some furniture. Um, so after the first stage had been built and they'd moved into the second floor, they decided that they wanted to change some things. And that was fine. And so they did a project whereby they designed and built uh, their own furniture to go inside the school. So there was a series of tiered steps. There was a couple of flip-top boxes that, you know, got fingers caught in them and weren't ever to be able to use again. But just that, you know, if you can bring the client along for the ride and make sure that they feel like they're important in the process and they're part of the process, they they own that place and they took such ownership. And when you go, when any of us architects go into the school now, it's it's, you know... They, they know us all, it's high fives all around. And that's, to me, that's, I guess, the most surprising thing is the joy that, that it's brought to people. Yeah. Junior endorsement. Junior endorsement. We'll take any endorsement, that'll do. <laughs> um, I am conscious that we're having a fantastic chat and there might be someone in the audience that might wish to um, ask some questions. If there's not, we can keep going. <laughs> well, maybe we'll... Okay, yep, great. Um, I think we might give you a microphone, but hold that thought and we'll just talk about sustainability for a second. Um, it shouldn't be something you add to a project. This is always Or a conversation. Or a conversation <laughs> even, it just is. And I would say that every step along the way it was, you know, how can we tread lightly? Uh, you know, from starting off by not wanting to build on, on the land that wasn't previously built on, from trying to bring as much of the greenery as we could into the green wall, from repurposing the existing building. I mean, we had an opportunity at one point in time to demolish the whole building and rebuild. We couldn't fit it into the budget, but as a concept for us, it actually still didn't stack up because even hard as it was to refurbish the existing building, there's a lot of materials in there and there's a lot of waste in there. Um, and and just we need to think better about these things and we need to be doing it as a matter of course and, uh, not, and not as something added on or something different or something to be applauded for. And it strikes me as well there's some pretty straightforward principles that are embedded in the core sketch, if you like, of the proposition, particularly of the COLA. Oh, for sure. And, and simplicity is, is, I guess, fundamental uh, to what we do. Uh, reducing the amount of materials that we're going to use, detailing it, it finally so that we don't have to 
add extra, extraneous bits and pieces. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other things, Bard could probably I, remind me. I like the water collection as well. Water that collection. was quite dramatic and good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but but it, I guess, you know, for that, for us, it was as important that it was a learning experience for the kids than it was as a good rainwater principle. I mean, that's a given. How, how can we now make sure that sustainability is, is a valuable and useful part and, a, and, a, and that we can budget for it, that it doesn't become an add-on that we have to pay for in an extra way? How can we embed it such that it just happens now in our projects? Mm, okay, thank you. The question? Uh, hi Jenny, congrats to you and the team on the project. Um, I actually visited on a day, it was about 28 degrees, hot, humid, sunny, but the temperature difference under the roof was quite marked and there were people using it, so that was fantastic to see. Mm. While it's obviously a very specific response to the brief on the site, I was also interested sort of considering it alongside, I suppose, some of the actions and objectives in things like Plan Melbourne and Infrastructure Victoria's 30-year strategy. And I see a lot of sort of, I guess, opportunities in the idea of it better utilising existing infrastructure and whether there have been any conversations about this becoming a, a kind of typology more broadly for mm. schools going forward and the ability for the community to kind of use those spaces when we are pushed for space and pushed for money to fund infrastructure. Great question. Uh, I'd, look, I'd, we'd love to see it, um, you know, rolled out where possible. I think um, as far as the schools go, it's definitely starting to be a conversation piece. We've proved that it can be built, we've proved that it can be built cheaper than an enclosed gymnasium and that it works and that it gives the school opportunities that an enclosed gymnasium doesn't do. So we are hoping and working with the VSBA to try and make sure that it, uh, it becomes something that the next lot don't have to fight for. We had to fight very hard for it because it was a departure from what they've always done. So those conversations are certainly starting. Um, I'm not sure, it might be a question for Ian from the City of Melbourne, whether those conversations are starting in the City of Melbourne, whether it's something, I mean, it is particular to that site, but it could certainly be rolled, ac you know, there's plenty of other sites have the same opportunity. Yeah. Um, absolutely. It's on. Um, in terms of the councillors themselves, they have a very dominant and prominent sort of agenda to um, look at those sort of increasing those sustainable sort of principles, you know, across the whole of the City of Melbourne sort of work as well. We also have been in conversation with the VSBA as well, supporting the view that this proves that you can actually do something different rather than trotting out the same old formulas that have been trotted out for years on end, etc. So yes, critical and um, the new design agenda that Councillor Rees talked about previously, I think will assist us in actually sort of getting that agenda to the forefront. Very good. Bard, you should have patented. <laughs> <laughs> We've got another one in the middle here. Hi. I'm interested in the briefing process of the community spaces and if you had um, kind of specific, you knew who was going to be using those spaces, did you have specific community groups involved from the beginning? Um, look, we didn't, and in future I would like to have those people involved more up front. So we did. We had voices that were very uh, strong and willing to lead. So we had voices from the City of Melbourne. We also had the school voices. On the ground floor of the facility, there are some school spaces exist. So there's art, art rooms, food rooms and science rooms, and the intention is that they're large rooms that the kids can bleed out of. In the community facility, apart from the maternal health, 
Uh, there are also a couple of large multi-purpose spaces, which I guess at the time were a little more of an unknown quantity, but we, we know that they will get use, we just weren't quite sure what that use would be. Um, the Early Learning Centre has only been in for about, about three months in, so we're still probably watching and waiting to see how some of those spaces are used. We're hoping that there's a, a connection of the school kids on the lower floor uh, with, the, with the small children and the parents' rooms and the multi-purpose rooms can be used for council and community functions. Um, but I guess we're, we're yet to see how that works. But I think, you know, in a lot of ways, if you're given too strict a brief about exactly what rooms you need to have, and generally you're given that with somebody who is only looking at what they've always done before, it ties you in. So for us, it was actually probably a blessing that we didn't have people telling us exactly what rooms we needed to put down there. We were able to let open it in to interpretation and to the possibility of what it might be used for. Um, firstly, congratulations. Um, I was just wondering about enrolment and whether you've seen, I know it's early days, but whether there's been a, a change in demographic that might be interested or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I actually spoke to Julie Large, the principal, just recently, and they now have, I think they've got 135 enrolments for this year. So the year of construction, enrolments went down a little bit. Everybody was aware that this school was going to go through turmoil and nobody wanted to send their kids there. And, and we anticipated that. And luckily the school were in it for the long term and recognised that, you know, it wasn't going to be smooth sailing. So it probably went from 70 uh, up to now the second year of its uh, iteration as the new school, up to 130. Um, and now that they've got the Early Learning Centre, which means that all the four-year-old and five-year-old kids are there, the hope is that a lot of those will then take up places at the school as well. So I think, you know, the prediction is that it will certainly get up to 200 within the next, next couple of years, which is great. Uh, sorry, hello. Uh, you mentioned about uh, sorry. Uh, you mentioned about the the brief wasn't quite clear at the very start of the project, and I think uh, um, you you got on with the um, engagement process with uh, different stakeholders and the community groups. Um, my question is that uh, sometimes when you're working on uh, uh, sensitive projects like educational facility or some some other uh, projects. Um, we have to have the messaging sort of right. And what was that? Uh, was there a difficulty while um, keeping that messaging clear with the community and the school? Or if there, if there was something good or bad, what was it? Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the hardest things from a messaging point of view is we felt like this project needed to almost it needed to market itself for the school and yet we didn't want to promote it as being a marketing exercise so how do you try and design a project which instills pride in its occupants um, and explain it to the community uh, whereby they don't think it's 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 a marketing exercise um, it's it's tricky but I would say that the the communication with the community was uh, was pretty consistent throughout. So we didn't know exactly what spaces were going to go in, but we knew the important principles, and that was that it was going to be a holistic community facility for early childhood years. 
And so that would contain primary school and early learning and anything else that went in amongst that. It was going to be a community facility which was going to include the facility but also be looking outwards from the school out towards the facility. And I think if you, if you keep it simple to a couple of really straightforward messages, don't get into the detail too much with anyone out there, uh, that's the easiest way to do it. Did you, did you use models in communicating with, with the local community? Oh, we use computer models. I wish we'd used hardcore, proper, original physical cardboard models. physical models. Uh, no, we were lucky enough to have an expert model, computer modelling team in the office, which uh, and and also some beautiful hand drawings of the cola, which I have to say probably sold it to the community yeah. as much as any computer rendering could ever do. One one thing I also wanted to talk a little bit about is that I've noticed that in the market there appears to be a sort of um, confidence that's emerged from the community to to really continue some form of social sustainability where the diversity of that community is now appears to be um, stepping forward in some way. Do you, do you feel that this has given an opportunity for those diverse cultural voices to emerge in the context of the project? Oh, look, I hope so. Um, I mean, it was always the intention to, A, showcase the cultural diversity that was already at the school, but also to make it even more inclusive. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't think there's one white family going to that school back in 2016. And, and that's, not, that's not cultural diversity. Um, and so what, you know, what we really needed to show was that there was so much already there. There was so much uh, love for the school and love for what they were doing. It was about how do we allow that to, to shine through. Um, I think one of the interesting things is that it's not just about the school, but it's because it's the surrounding neighbourhood, the comments that we got back from the shop owners was fascinating. And to be honest, we hadn't thought a lot about the shop owners, but this was a great thing for them. The people as, who... Uh, as part of your uh, jury presentation, it was great. They rocked up with a computer with audio files of commentary from the shop owners and the, the community around. And it was a really, really nice way to get those voices into the room so yeah. that we could understand exactly the context that you were operating in. Yeah. So, I, look, I think from us, the starting point was to, to embrace the school and, and the kids that were there and the, the vibrancy that was there. I think the long-term legacy, I hope, is that it, it changes again and that it, what we've provided is flexible enough and open enough and inviting enough for whatever happens in Rathdown Street, Carlton, to happen. Uh, and to bring in whoever else is going to... If there's going to be, you know, a whole lot more multi-storey units, that, that, that it brings those people in. If they start knocking down the commission flats and build multi-million dollar dwellings, we hope it brings those people in. So I guess that's about providing something that can change over time. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic place to pause. And uh, uh, thank you all for the contribution from the floor. And Jenny can certainly um, answer questions, uh, probably for a little while to go. We've got five minutes apparently that, uh, that she can have a personal chat with all of you. So thanks very much for coming thanks along. Thanks for coming. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.